Today is part three of our Christmas series, Bethlehem, Every Heart a Manger. Six miles from Jesus. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter two? Thank you, Naomi. And thank you, Bella Viola, for such a beautiful, beautiful... Time of ministry through song. Twelve years old, Bella. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is our main scripture text. And gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you've sent your son to be born in our hearts. Thank you for your presence. In our midst. Thank you for holding us. In your loving arms. I pray that your. Spirit the Holy Spirit would just. Speak to all of our hearts as we look to you in your holy word. Speak through your servant today I pray. Through the power of your spirit, quiet our hearts, our minds, that we would hear your voice and experience up close and personal your amazing, unconditional love. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them whether Christ was to be born. And so they said to them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet. But you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod when he had secretly called the wise men. Determined from them what time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and, and myrrh. And then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. 
One of the stories we tell at Christmas time is that of the wise men who followed the star that led them to the place where, where Jesus was and of the gifts of gold and frankincense and, and myrrh that they presented to Jesus as they worshipped him. There's some personal takeaways in today's story that we can learn, that we can learn from and it has to do with the response to the news about Jesus' birth. Sadly, it is the same response that Jesus is met with today. Animosity. Apathy. And the busyness that keeps people from taking an interest in the Savior of the world. At his very heart, this passage, today's main scripture text, is about God's work of salvation and our response, your response, and my response. The driving question for this passage is simple. How do you respond to King Jesus? How does Pat Medeiros respond to King Jesus? The question of the wise men, where is he who has been born king of the Jews, solicited three different responses. From the very outset, we see that Jesus' birth creates a political crisis. Now, when you come into a palace of a king and you ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's going to threaten the person sitting on the throne. Just naturally, normally, it's going gonna, it's gonna to threaten the king who's sitting on the throne. The text tells us that Herod was troubled, disturbed. One of the great understatements of the Bible. When he had heard the report of the wise men, he consulted Old Testament Bible scholars who told him that the Messiah was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem. He tells the wise men to go to Bethlehem to find the Messiah and then to send word to him saying in verse 8 of our text that I may come and worship him. Herod, of course, wanted only to kill Jesus. He had no interest in worshiping Jesus. And the wise men, as we read in our text, warned by God in a dream what Herod's intentions really were, ended up going home a different way without telling Herod anything about Christ, about Jesus. Herod, realizing what had happened, and paranoid as he was, and and threatened as he was, that he could possibly be removed from his throne by this baby born, King of the Jews, Herod took the lives of all children under the age of two in Bethlehem to be sure he stayed on the throne. His response to King Jesus was one of animosity. He will not sit. This baby born king of the Jews will not sit on my throne. He will not rule over me. He will not rule over my life. In the very beginning, when we think of the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it was an act of defiance, saying to God that he would not have dominion over them. 
They would be their own rulers. They would be their own kings. Herod inherited this defiant nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. King Herod's reaction to Christ. King Herod's reaction to Christ is a picture of us all. If you want to be king and someone comes along saying he is the king, this creates a tension. Only one person can sit on a throne. In every heart, if we're honest with ourselves, there's a little King Herod. There's a little King Herod that wants to rule and that is threatened by anything that may compromise our position as king of our lives, as ruler of our own life. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 7, says, For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. There's an animosity that lies within the sinful nature of humanity. Verse 8 of Romans 8 states, That's why those still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. They live in a state of hostility, animosity. Toward God. There's a natural hostility, a natural animosity that rises up in the human heart against all claims of sovereignty over it. No one, absolutely no one tells me what to do. Absolutely no one tells me how to live my life. Absolutely no one tells me what's right and what's wrong for me. Not only are there people who outrightly reject and refuse the rule of Christ in their, in their lives completely, but there are also those of us who have the mistaken idea that we can refuse the rule of Christ in certain areas of our lives. You can rule here. You can be king here. You can, you, can be, you can rule here, you can be Lord here, you can be king here. Oh, but here? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Uh, Jesus, you can, you can rule here. You can rule here, you can rule here, you can be king here. Oh, oh, oh not here though. Not this part of me. I'm the king. I rule, not you. And so like Herod, we do what is necessary to protect, to protect that area, to protect our sinful desire, because that's exactly what it is, to protect our defiant life pattern. You see, there's a part of each of us that wants to exercise dominion over certain areas of our lives, especially when it comes to something that we find pleasure in. Something that we find comfort in and and something that we find power in. 
And, and so like Herod, we do whatever is necessary to protect our sinful desire, our defiant life pattern. When that thing becomes confronted, the throne of our heart shakes. Our occupied hearts become troubled, deeply disturbed. And like Herod, we are refusing Jesus for something that will never satisfy and in the end will only destroy us. Jesus came claiming to be God, the king of the Jews. He said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. This is not a command to literally become hateful toward one's family. Not at all. Jesus is calling rather for an allegiance to him so supreme that it makes all other commitments, all other relationships look weak in comparison to our relationship with him. It is a claim of absolute authority, a summons to unconditional loyalty to him as king of our life. Such a radical call triggers deep resistance within the human heart. This resistance within the human heart toward Jesus who reveals himself as our absolute king is one of the hidden truths of Christmas. It's one of the hidden truths of Christmas. Where's the true king? Where's the true king? That question is the most disturbing question possible for the human heart since we naturally want to at all costs remain on the throne of our own lives. We want to be king. How many want to be king? Anyone who tries to claim the throne of our heart is in for a fight. We all have a little King Herod. This preacher has a little King Herod. Sure, we'll put up a Christmas tree, we'll go to church, take a little religion. But give Jesus reign over our lives? (laughs) Never. We don't want Jesus to interfere with our plans. Our dreams, our ambitions. Our GPS system that we've programmed into our lives taking us where we want to go. Never. You mean you want me to forgive this person? You mean you want me to love this person? You mean you want me to serve this person? Never, Jesus. We all have a little King Herod. Because when we say no to Jesus, we replace him on the throne of our hearts with ourselves. Herod's response was one of animosity. Strong hostility, resentment, and bitterness. And there's another response we see here in this story that catches my attention. One of apathy. A lack of interest in the one born king of the Jews. 
We, we know the scripture states that when he, the wise men arrived in Jerusalem and asked about the one born, the king of the Jews, King Herod was disturbed. He was troubled, as was all of Jerusalem, our text tells us. All of Jerusalem with Herod was, was troubled, was disturbed, deeply disturbed. Herod called the chief priests and teachers of the law and he asked them where the Messiah, where this king was to be born. And they were the experts. They knew the Old Testament scripture inside, inside and out. They knew it intimately. Herod called the right consultants using Old Testament passage, using an Old Testament passage. They accurately pointed to Bethlehem. The Jewish teachers read the well-known Bible prophecy written 700 years earlier in the Old Testament book of of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, where it states, But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And here's what I find striking. The religious leaders' own scriptural knowledge of the, of the Old Testament. They were the experts. I find this quite striking. The religious leaders' own scriptural knowledge in confirmation that the Messiah, Jesus, King of the Jews, is to be born in Bethlehem does not lead them to personally seek out Jesus, to seek out the the long-awaited one, the, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of not only Israel and the Jewish people, but the whole world. They knew based on this prophecy that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Why didn't they go and check out for themselves this baby that was born? They knew the truth. Why didn't they go the six short miles to Jesus? Six miles. That's all it was. It was a six-mile walk to Jesus. Just to put it in context, it's like driving from Greece Assembly, 750 Long Pond Road, to Shalott. Six miles. Six short miles. Yet... They showed no interest, just apathy. Why didn't they run to Bethlehem with the wise men to to worship the long-awaited Savior? They were six miles from the very Son of God. Think about that. Six miles away from the one who would bring salvation and forgiveness to mankind. Six miles from the giver of eternal life. Just six miles within their reach. Within their reach. Just six miles. The wise men were seeking the king. They traveled well over a thousand miles. Herod was rejecting the king. And the Jewish priests were ignoring the king. They were uninterested. These were the experts of Old Testament scripture. They had knowledge. Well-versed, well-trained. They were filled with all this knowledge. 
These priests knew the scriptures and pointed others in the Savior's direction. They said to the wise men, go to Bethlehem. He's there based on Micah 5.2. Go to Bethlehem. We're experts of Old Testament law. We know the word of God. We know the scripture. These priests knew the scriptures and pointed others in the Savior's direction, but they would not travel the six miles to worship him themselves. They had no interest. Whatever their reason. The context of our text doesn't really say. Those religious leaders who should have cared the most wouldn't take the short trip to check out the rumor that their long-awaited Messiah had been born. Perhaps they were more interested in religion than in a relationship with Jesus Christ. They read the prophecy, but they didn't respond to it. And how often do we read the word of God and we don't respond to the word of God? We have a little bit of the priest, don't we? We have a little bit of King Herod. We have a little bit of the priest. We, 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 we read the word of God and we don't respond to the word of God. They read the prophecy, but they didn't respond to it. You would think at a minimum that they would have accompanied the wise men to Bethlehem. The village was near enough. The risk was small enough. At worst, they would be out the effort. <sighs> that was a long walk. But at best, they would see the fulfillment of prophecy. But the priest showed no interest. We really don't know why, but we know, we do know that everybody involved in this story had the same basic information, but only the wise men did something with it. The takeaway that I see in this second response it's possible to know a great deal about the Bible and still miss the truth. How many people know Christmas is about the Christ child, God's son coming into the world? They know about Jesus, the savior of the world, but don't worship him. They know here, they know here, they have a knowledge what Christmas is all about. It stirs up so many emotions, animosity. That's why this movement to, to, to take Christmas, Christ out of Christmas, there's animosity. You're threatening my throne. We know, we know here, but we don't worship him here. We make Christmas about everything else. And we go through great extents to make sure everything else is just perfect. But like these priests, we ignore the Christ in Christmas. Uninterested. Other interests. Other interests. Other interests. 
Nothing wrong with these other interests. Until they distract us from the one who came to be born in our hearts. How many people know Christmas is about Jesus, the Savior of the world? But how many of us don't worship him? Perhaps you've been religious, but your beliefs have never led to a personal trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And so here's the invitation to you from Christ in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, Beaten down by life, the cares of life, the pain of life, the the tragedy of life, the losses of life. Jesus says, come, come, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In me, you will find peace for your troubled heart. Hope for a better tomorrow. We must confess the fact that our sins have been against God. My sins, your sins, contributed to the necessity for Christ to come to earth to die on the cross. He came to earth to be a sinless man and then take the punishment of of our sins, my sin and your sin. The punishment that I deserved it and you deserve and the whole world deserves. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Even death, our greatest enemy, couldn't conquer Jesus. Religion and knowledge about Christ won't bring eternal life and a future in heaven. The Bible urges us and and. Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And that's what these wise men were doing. And wise men still seek Jesus. Jesus promises in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast you out. I will hold you. Like Mary held me when I came into this world, I will hold you. I will never cast you out. I will never drop you. I will never hurt you. But I will care for you like a mother cares for her newborn babe. I will care for you. I will provide for you. There's a third response. It's the response of the wise men. It's one of adoration. Adoration. Matthew chapter 2 verse 11 states in our text, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child would marry his mother and fell down and worshipped him. Now something that I think is important to draw our attention to in this story is at this point, Jesus, in this point in Jesus' young life, He's believed to be at least one month old, but maybe it's possible no more than two years old when when they arrived, when the wise men arrived. 
We, we have them at the scene already. The nativity sat. But scripturally, they weren't there at his birth. It was later that they arrived. And as an infant, and this is what I find very striking to me. You know, I'm reading these, these narratives of the Christmas story. And every time I, I've read them this year, I, I pray, God, help me to see them and to read them with fresh eyes. As an infant, when these, rot, these wise men, they arrived and they, they, they see the Christ child born king of the Jews and they fall down and, and they worship him, our text says. That really grips my heart. As an infant, Jesus hadn't done anything for these wise men. Absolutely zero, nothing. In fact, as an infant, Jesus hadn't done anything for anyone. As you read through the Gospels, I mean, Jesus, he did some amazing things, amazing miracles, incredible, multiplying fish and bread and feeds a crowd of 5,000, feeds a crowd of 3,000. He walks on the water in the midst of a storm and and the disciples were sinking in their boat and, and, and Jesus comes on the scene. He hadn't done any of that. I mean, he, he, he rose the dead, he healed the blind, made the lame walk. He hadn't done any of that. He didn't do any miracles yet. No one heard Jesus teach with heaven's authority. He was, wow. He drew crowds and crowds and crowds and crowds of people as he, as he, as he expounded on the, on the Old Testament law, as he Founded on the Old Testament scripture. No one had heard him teach. He hadn't taught yet. He was, just a, he was a baby. At most, he was two years old when the wise men found him there in Bethlehem. These men, though, fell down and worshipped Jesus because of who he was. Because of who he was. He's God's son. Not for any other reason. Why do you choose to worship Jesus? Let's consider for just a moment the names assigned to God's son. The name Jesus means savior and comes from the Hebrew name Joshua. Jehovah is salvation. In in Matthew chapter one, we read about an angel sent by God, apparent to Joseph and, and saying to him in verses 20 and 21, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Christ, as used in our text, means anointed. It is the Greek equivalent of Messiah. God's son is Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Jesus is his human name. Christ is his title, his position. In the Old Testament, those who were set apart by God for positions of spiritual or political leadership or authority were anointed with oil as a symbol of their authority. Oil was poured on their heads. 
Oil was poured on the heads of the priests, for example, kings and prophets, to indicate that God had chosen them and consecrated them for the work he had given them, the work he had set them apart to do, the work that he had called them to do. At the beginning of of Jesus' ministry on earth, Jesus went to the synagogue in Nazareth and on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath day, he read the scripture for that day and the scripture for that day happened to be Luke chapter 4 verses 17 through 21. It wasn't the, the passage by happen chance, but by divine order. This is what he reads. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, fixed on Jesus. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was reading from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, written 700 years before his birth. Isaiah 61.1 says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Isaiah 61.1 from the Old Testament. You see, as the Christ... Jesus was God's anointed one who fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, the promised Messiah who came to save us from sin. The Bible says in Acts chapter 10 in the New Testament, verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. I love that. For God was with him. For God was with him. Jesus is his human name. Christ is his official title in Emmanuel describes who he is. God with us. Can we say that together here this morning? God with us. Oh, just one more time. God with us. The wise men fell down and worshiped him. God with us. Because he was Jesus the Christ. God with us, not for anything Jesus did for them. If Jesus never did anything for you, would you fall down and worship him because he is God with us? If he never does another thing for you, he already did and met our greatest need. All our needs were met. On his work on the cross, he did that for you, he did that for me. But if he never did another thing, would you fall on your knees and worship him? Because he is God with us. God with us. Isn't that beautiful church? There was no other reason why they fell and worshiped him. The gifts they brought and laid at his feet were gifts that affirmed who Jesus was. Luke chapter 2, verse 11 of our text. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is the medal of kings. 
in presenting gold to Jesus, they were acknowledging his kingship, his lordship. These wise men knew that Jesus was the king of kings and the lord of lords. Incense was also a significant gift. It was used in the temple, worship, frankincense. It was used in the temple worship. It was mixed with with the oil that was used to anoint the priests of Israel. In presenting this gift, the wise men pointed to Christ as our great high priest who sympathizes with us. Who sympathizes with us. Who left heaven and came here. As our great high priest, he sympathizes. The Bible says he was tested, he was tried, he was tempted like we are in this hunk of flesh in this world, yet without sin. We have a great high priest in heaven who sympathizes. He knows what it's like to be tested and tried and pushed to the limit. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like to to cut your hand and to bleed. He knows, God knows, he knows, he knows he's personal. He left heaven, he became man. He knows. And the Bible says we have a great high priest. We have a great high priest who sympathizes with us that we can come with confidence, with boldness to the throne of Almighty God in our time of need for divine help. How many have need here today? You have a need today. You have a need in your life today. You have a great high priest who sympathizes with your need. He's moved with deep compassion for your need. He hurts with you. He is God with us. He's right there in the midst of your pain, right there in the midst of your hurt, right there in the midst of your confusion. He sympathizes with you, and he invites us to come to him for help in time of need. There's a grace from heaven that awaits your need today. There's a grace from heaven that awaits your need today. And it's my prayer that your need will meet heaven's grace today in Jesus Christ. Let's praise him, church. He's worthy, worthy, worthy to be praised. The third gift, myrrh, was used for embalming. Now... It would be odd, if not offensive, to present to the infant Christ a spice used for embalming. But it was not offensive in this case, nor was it odd. We don't know precisely what the wise men may have known about Christ's ministry. But we do know that the Old Testament again and again foretold of Christ's suffering. Isaiah 53, 5 says he was wounded for our transgression, for our sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. Verse 8 says, for the transgressions of my people, Israel, he was stricken. Verse 9 says, and they made his grave with the wicked. And presenting myrrh, the wise men were acknowledging Jesus Christ as the suffering servant prophesied. In Isaiah 53, sent by God, Christ, the anointed one of God who came to be your suffering 
and my suffering servant that we might have the forgiveness of sin and experience eternal life with him, that we would be able to have a personal relationship with God, God with us. The wise men fell down and worshiped the Christ child because of who he was, Jesus the Christ, God with us. There was no other reason. How many of us, how many of us say, maybe we think this in our heart, Jesus, I'll worship you if. Jesus, I'll give you my life if. Jesus, I'll do this. I'll go across the street. Hey, Jesus, I'll forgive that person if. There's something else very important to point out in our story. The word translated wise men is magi and refers to a group of scholars who studied the stars. They most likely were astrologers. When they entered Jerusalem with their caravan, they caused quite a commotion. We, we see this in reading verses 1 and 2 of our text. And Psalms 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens, the stars declare the glory of God. God uses the natural world to get the attention of the wise men. The apostle Paul, he wrote in, in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his God, it, God's invisible attributes are cle- clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, created by him, even his eternal power in Godhead. God used a sign, a star that led the wise men to Jerusalem. Read the text. This star led the wise men to Jerusalem. But it took the scripture to lead them to Jesus. When they arrived and asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod, as I've already shared, called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the Old Testament scripture. Reading from Micah 5.2, the scripture leads the wise men to Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. People see signs of God everywhere. They're everywhere. Sunsets that steal your breath. Newborns that bring so much joy. Migrating geese that make you stand in awe as they fly in that V formation. The wise men followed the star sign to Jerusalem where they heard about the scripture. The prophecy told them where to find Christ. God has revealed himself through the written word, the scripture. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to you and me, who he is and how he's worthy to be worshiped. All scripture gives testimony to Jesus Christ and how He can be born in your heart and in my heart. The fact that these wise men were Gentiles is also significant. From the very beginning, Jesus came to be the savior of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so as I conclude here this morning, The story of the wise men is so familiar 
in American culture. Perhaps when you read today's text, you think of the carol written by the 19th century hymn writer, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Or maybe you imagine the scene as it is depicted on on the Christmas cards with infant Jesus, baby Jesus, Mary, shepherds, angels, and three kings surrounding an animal feeding trough. Much like many nativities that sit on the mantle of many homes and even the one that sits here on our communion table. But the purpose, the purpose of this story is for us to see the deeper meaning of the text of the Christmas story. There is a much more deeper message than our Christmas traditions present to us. And at its very heart, this passage is about God's work in salvation and man's response to King Jesus. And so the driving question for this passage is simple. How do you respond to King Jesus? How do you respond to King Jesus? Do you refuse him? like Herod? Do you ignore him like the priest? Or do you worship him above all else like the wise men? You see, Jesus came on that first Christmas to be born in your heart. To be king of your heart. To be God with you. Jesus wants to be born in you. Every human heart can be a manger. A place where Jesus rules as king of kings and lord of lords.